0: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is April 22nd, 2009. Oh, and man, do I have wild hair. I've got a crazy idea running through my mind. After I explain it to you, you might want to take me outside the city gates and stone me as a heretic. Alright, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is a program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think Biblically, and to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Christianity, in the name of God, in the name of religion, to the Word of God. Why? Because God's Word is true, and men happen to have a tendency to become liars. Now, this little exercise that we engage in uh, also includes you comparing what I say in Scriptures, uh, compare what I say to the Scriptures. Today's program... Is going, to, uh, is going to be, again, a little bit different. Yesterday, we uh, we did a Perry Noble twin spin. That is, is that we re- re- reviewed two of Perry Noble's sermons back-to-back, his Easter sermon and his week-after Easter sermon. His Easter sermon had some merit, but there were some problems because he talked about the fact that Jesus came to give us an abundant life, um, n- not comfortable with that language whatsoever, at least the way he was using it. And uh, and th- at the end of it, he had an altar call. And then the following week, he was proud to announce that 322 people had accepted the Lord, had walked the aisle, had, had asked Jesus into their hearts. And I have to tell you, uh, the last two sermons that we've reviewed here um, on Fighting for the Faith, actual sermons, uh, was uh, Perry Noble's uh, two sermons and then actually a third sermon was the sermon from... Uh, the Church uh, S uh, Spirit of Saint Louis Church and their uh, ult, uh, Jesus Ultimate Fighter, and I played the uh, audio from those sermons all the way to the end to the altar call both times, and I I don't want to sound like I'm obsessing about this, however I think I am. Uh, this has really got my mind spinning. Has got me reading like I haven't read in a long time. I have been digging not only into the scriptures um but also digging deep into the writings of the early church fathers and to get my mind outside of american christianity into a different pool if you would a different pond and to swim in that pond for a little bit as it pertains to this issue number 1 if you i wrote a piece over at extremetheology.com and i posted it today and in fact Tell you what, uh, let me tell you what we're going to talk about on the program here, and then I'm going to read that to you. Um, We're going to talk about my radical and dangerous idea, which has to do with the subject of baptism. Now, some of you who have been emailing me uh, regarding the issue of baptism... Um, consider this a little bit of prep work in in regards to uh, a renewed discussion on infant baptism, but today's issue is not infant baptism that's not the topic that's on on the plate. It is literally itself baptism. you'll see why I'm going to pull this in. and this is going to take up the bulk of the program today, and then we're going to um, we're going to be listening to what I consider to be an absolutely delightful sermon. I, that is the only way I can describe it. Uh, one of our listeners uh, his name is uh, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. He is from Great britain and he 's the assistant pastor at Tabor Baptist Church in uh in, I, in Land, uh, uh South Wales and I know I butchered the name there of his uh, town, but uh he he we exchange emails periodically. And I had asked him for a copy of, uh, you know, one of his sermons to potentially review. And he sent me a sermon on uh, what he calls the two commissions. And it was a, uh, a, a, chur- uh, it was a sermon that he preached at New Life uh, Bible Presbyterian Church in London. And I got to tell you, this, it, it's it's not like any sermon that you normally hear. And it was just absolutely Delightful, and the best way I could describe this particular sermon before we ever get to it is: it's the difference of of um, sit. You know, most American preaching is very cut and dried information delivery, and it's like sitting in a lecture hall and you take notes. Not so with this sermon. Um, to use a nerdy example, because I know there's plenty of nerds out there that uh, even if you're not a nerd, you're gonna you're gonna understand what I'm talking about. Think back to the Star Trek: The Next Generation, and uh, they had uh, this thing on you know on the Enterprise called the holodeck, which was this immersive experience where it's apparently you know you can you know it create artificial worlds or whatever experiences uh, using holograms or holog, you know, holographics or whatever you want to call that particular science. And it was an immersive experience. Uh, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley's um, sermon is like being in the holodeck. It's an immersive experience. He's not preaching a lecture to, that necessarily to deliver information, but boy, is there information that's delivered in it. It's immersive in the sense that, I kid you not, while I was listening to this on the treadmill, I I could envision myself... In the story, in the places, in the stories that he was telling, it it was so masterfully done. I'm very excited to share that with you. So you definitely want to stay tuned. There will be no need for an emergency sermon after this because this is a this definitely goes into the good category. Um, so we're going to be doing that. But uh, so first of all, I'm going to read you this post that I put at extremetheology.com Today we're going to talk about my radical and almost dangerous idea. And uh, and then we're going to be listening to Jervis uh, Nicholas Edward Charmley's sermon. Now, notice we're not doing news today, and we're not doing listener email per se. And this really has to do with the fact that uh, my mind is really <laughs> chewing on this. And uh, one of the things you'll you'll learn about me over time is that I'm I'm one of these guys who's like a problem solver. And when there's an issue that comes up, I've got to I've got to find the solution. I've got to hunt. I've got to read. I've got to learn. I've got to... Well. You get the point. Anyway, um, so let me let me read this to you. the The post is uh, dated April twenty second, two thousand and nine. It's called "Do you have free will to love God and to love your neighbor?" And um, what we heard yesterday in Perry Noble's sermon, even though he affirms salvation by grace through faith, he's not a monergist. He's a synergist. Now, if you're not familiar with those two terms, monergism teaches that it is God alone who regenerates you, okay? God alone is the one who saves. There's no mixing of your works and God's works. There's no mixing of your decision and God's decision, or if you take the first step, then God will meet you the rest of the way. None of that. Synergism is any combination, of your works and God and God's works, you're, you're mixing your works with God's work, and uh, it, when it comes to regeneration and how you're saved, and a lot of times synergism also plays out in sanctification as well, which is one of the problems that we're seeing in a lot of preaching nowadays. Now, understand this: um, the Bible strictly teaches monergism, and I laid this out in in the case yesterday. Uh, that God is alone is the one who decides God alone is the one who saves God, even repentance and faith is a gift from God all of these things that God does and he does these things using i 'm going to use the um, the theological terms here the means of grace okay the Word of God being one of those means of grace by which he calls us sanctifies us, and gives us faith now um Understand this, though, that comes through the preaching of the Word of Christ, and the Word of Christ is really both law and gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And one of the things I've really noticed in, you know, I've been trying to kind of step back and take stock of all of the sermons that we review here at Fighting for the Faith and really try to come up with some way of summarizing what it is that I'm listening to, what it is that I'm hearing, and see if I can't put my finger on... Some of the bigger problems. Now, a lot of times I don't tell you this, but you know, before I do a sermon review, one of the things I do is I really spend some time perusing uh, the website for the churches uh, for the sermons that we review. I look at their doctrinal statements if it's online. Uh, try to see what resources and books that they're, they're promoting and selling. You know, take a look at their mission and vision statements, and which, by the way, is kind of bizarre. Um, mission and vision statements is corporate. These are, these are tools of the corporate world, and it's weird that they're being brought into the church. And um, over and over and over again, what I see these seeker-driven churches doing is coming up with vision statements that pretty much can be summarized as love God and love people. Well, what is that? Love God and love people. That's the summary of the Mosaic Law. All right? And the law doesn't save you. It condemns you, and it shows you what a good work is, but it's completely powerless to give you any ability to keep it. All right? Now, let me... um, Let me read to you this piece. It's called, Do You Have Free Will to Love God and to Love Your Neighbor? Now, many of these new seeker-driven churches ape the practices of the corporate world and have created their own mission and vision statements. Now, I I put a little footnote here. This makes me wonder how on earth the church has survived for millennia without mission and vision statements. But laying all sarcasm aside... uh, the church already has a mission and vision statement given by Jesus Christ. They are quote, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you." That's Matthew 18, 19, and 20. And repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's Luke 24:47. No true Christian church has the freedom to supplant Jesus' stated mission and vision statements with their own home-brewed statements. Now, I've noticed a trend among these churches, and that trend being the fact that many of these newfangled mission and vision statements are nothing other than a two-point summary of the Mosaic Law, love God and love people. As a result of their mission and vision focus on fulfilling the law rather than the Great Commission, the sermons preached in these churches amount to nothing more than tips and principles and advice for loving God and loving people. But there's just one problem. They're not preaching the obedience that flows from faith in Jesus Christ as a fruit of faith that abides in Jesus Christ and tenaciously clings to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. No. Instead, uh, they preach nothing but raw, naked, man-powered obedience— And when you add into this equation the fact that the vast majority of these churches deny the doctrine of original sin, or total depravity if you're a Calvinist, by ascribing to mankind the ability to exercise free will in making a decision for God, then you have no choice but to conclude that the vast majority of these seeker-driven churches are really nothing more than bacterial breeding grounds for one of the most pernicious doctrinal diseases known to the church, that being the Pelagian heresy. In ancient times, the Church battled this heresy, and God graciously provided men who, conduct, who contended for the faith and overcame this stubborn doctrinal infection. Uh, the uh, man most famous in proclaiming the cure for the Pelagian cancer was St. Augustine. His work, entitled On Nature and Grace, should be required reading for any Christian scholar or layman that seeks to participate in helping to cure those infected by Pelagianism. Now, what's funny is, is that it's really not that long of a work, and um, I uh, sat down this morning, uh, got up at the crack of dawn, and I I reread on Nature and Grace today. Um, actually, not all the way through it, but I got about three-quarters of the way through it. It's not, It doesn't take that long to read. Um, now, in chapter 47 on Nature and Grace, Augustine writes, If natural capacity, with the help of free will, is in itself sufficient both for learning how one ought to live, and for leading a holy life? Then Christ died for nothing. Let me. What does he mean by natural capacity? This basically just means natural law. I mean, the natural principles for morals. If natural capacity, you, ha- you and your free will, if natural capacity with the help of free will is in itself sufficient both for learning how one ought to live and for leading a holy life, then Christ died for nothing. And then the scandal of the cross has been removed. And why should I also not cry out here? Yes, with a Christian sorrow, I will cry out and I will, um, and I will chide them. You who want to be justified by nature have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. He's quoting Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish your own, you have not submitted to God's righteousness. For just as Christ is, in, uh, is the end of the law, so Christ is the Savior of corrupted human nature. For the, for the righteousness to all who believe. That's Romans chapter 10, verse 4. So if you really want to get a handle on how to fight Pelagianism, read Augustine get out of the american uh, out of the american 21st century in its reading and its culture and get into a different culture christianity wasn't invented yesterday uh, christianity wasn't just brewed uh in somebody's uh, home bible study a week ago christianity has existed from the foundations of the earth the true church has and in its current form of the church, you know, from the time of the uh, basically these at the end times church, if you would, uh, in its current form from the uh, from the time that Jesus commissions them in the in the great commission to go and make disciples. You know, we've got a long, unbroken chain of men who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus name for the forgiveness of their sins. We continue. Um, Another work that will greatly aid those wishing to join this battle—the battle against the pernicious uh, um, Pelagianism—is Article Four of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Now, I don't care if you're a Lutheran or not; you need to read this. I'm telling you, it's great stuff. Um, And I put a link up to it in the in the article itself. Read Article Four of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. This work is both edifying and lucid in its defense of the chief article of the Christian faith, which is salvation by grace through faith. Regarding whether or not man has a natural capacity to love God and to love people, Philip Melanchthon, one of the Lutheran reformers, writes, And John 8, 36 says, So if the Son of Man makes you free, you will be free indeed. Therefore, reason cannot free us from our sins and merit the forgiveness of sins. In John 3, verse 5, it is written, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water in the Spirit. But if we must be born anew through the Holy Spirit, then the righteousness of reason does not justify us before God, and it does not keep the law. And Romans three twenty three says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is that they lack the wisdom and the righteousness of God, which acknowledges and glorifies God. Again, Romans 8, verses 7 through 8, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These witnesses are so clear that to use the words of Augustine as he used them in discussing this case, they do not require an an acute intellect, but only attentive listening. So Melanchthon continues, he says, If the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, the flesh certainly does not love God. If it cannot submit to the law of God, it cannot love God. If the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, then the the flesh sins even when we perform outward civil works. If it cannot submit to the law of God, it certainly sins even when we perform works that are excellent and praiseworthy in human eyes. The opponents consider only the commandments of the second table. By the way, the the uh, Ten Commandments are broken into two tables. First table has to do with our relationship to God, and the second table has to do with our relationship to our to our fellow human beings, fellow uh, you know sons of Adam, you know, so to speak. Okay. So, um, the opponents consider only the commandments of the second table, which entail the the civil righteousness that reason can understand. Being content with this, they suppose that they satisfy the law of God. Now, I want to point something out to you. Over and over and again, um, what we see in these seeker-driven sermons is basically, if, if you could put it into any of the two tables of the law, it would be second table. It would be stuff that has to do relationships, my purpose in life, living, uh, having a happy family, having good finances, all of this stuff is, is, uh, is horizontal and not vertical. This, the, but the, if they really were to preach the law correctly, they would also talk about the first table, which commands us truly to love God with all of our heart. And they skate around that issue. Meanwhile, they fail to notice at the first table, which instructs us to love God, to conclude that God is angry with sin, truly to fear God, truly to conclude that God hears our prayers. But without the Holy Spirit, the human heart either despises the judgment of God in its complacency or in the face of punishment, flees and hates God who judges them. Thus, it does not obey the first table. Therefore, since these things, contempt for God, doubt about the word of God and about its threats and promises, clings uh, to human nature, people truly sin even when they do not, when they do respectable works without the Holy Spirit, because they do them in a godless heart. So it doesn't matter how good your works are, um, you y- if you don't have faith, you're doing good works with a godless heart, and those don't count for nothing. So according to the text, Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Such people perform their works with contempt for God, just as when Epicurus did not think that God cared for him, paid no attention to him, or heard his prayer. This contempt for God corrupts works that appear to be honorable because God judges the heart. So this idea that we can have you know, that that we need to give people again, watch what happens. Seeker driven methodology. You go and conduct a sociological survey of the unchurched in your neighborhood, ask them what they want in a church, and then you give it to them. Well, what do the unchurched consider relevant? They want stuff that's practical for life now. Everything they want is if you were to take it and put it, compare it to the law, it would all fall under second table. Second table of the law. But so if you give a, an unbeliever tips on how to have a better relationship with their wife or, or their spouse or how to be a better parent or how to uh, be more satisfied at work or how to get along with your workmates or how all of that stuff. I mean, it's practical and everything like that, but it doesn't count for beans because they do not do these works in love for God Because they're not regenerate. They don't have faith. So you basically... How does Jesus describe the Pharisees? As whitewashed tombs. The problem with the seeker movement is it basically markets to a bunch of tombs, dead people in their sins, and teaches them how to whitewash the outside of their tomb But it's still full of dead men's stinking, rotting, molding bones. Have they truly helped anybody to love God and love other people? No, not at all. So I bring that up um, because I want to do more in-depth analysis on this stuff. But now... It's time for this really radical and dangerous idea. I got a comment that came in from uh, a gentleman by the name of Mark. I don't know where he's from, and he wrote to me at, at extremetheology.com. And on the piece that I wrote regarding the false assumption of decision, uh, decisional evangelism, that my concluding shot was that if an evangelist is not preaching repentance Uh, of sins and the forgiveness of sins in jesus name also known as the word of christ and he's not preaching a message that god will use to impart the gifts of repentance and faith and peace with god through the forgiveness of sins in jesus name so mark writes he says i always get a little confused at the derision shown altar calls type salvation what about what about when the repentance and the forgiveness is in jesus name is taught before such a call is made. I know and agree that it is God who saves, but how does one make that transition point from death to life clear to the convert? This is such a dangerous and wonderful question all at the same time. Listen again to his question. I know and agree that it is God who saves, but how does one make that transitional point from death to life clear to the convert? Again, I know it's not the work of any person that saves them, but the work of God. Still, if you had a person who God is saving at that moment, and you've given them the opportunity to make public profession of it, is that bad? Okay, well, let me start by answering it this way, Mark. Um, The answer to the question is, it becomes bad and false when you lead them in a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart. This is not biblical language. It's not biblical methodology. In fact, it's nowhere to be found in scriptures. In fact, I would say um, it's not true regeneration at that point because you're you're leading them in a—you're basically teaching them to put faith in their—the sincerity of that prayer. Not the way to do it. Now, if you really want to know what it is that you should be doing biblically to— help somebody, the, help the convert understand their transition point from death to life, let me provide you with an extremely dangerous and radical idea. In fact, promoting this idea on this radio program could not only cost me listeners, uh, there might be people who will show up at my door and walk me outside of the city gates and maybe throw rocks at me until I stop moving that's how dangerous this idea is. So the question we're going to be answering is what is the appropriate biblical thing to do to take help the convert understand their transition from death to life. I'm going to answer this question biblically and we're going to be spending some time listening to some biblical stories. Okay? And I begin my story at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Under, you know, put yourself into the story for a minute, okay? You're the Apostle Matthew, and you're, you're writing down your eyewitness, ex, eyewitness experience with Jesus Christ. You were a tax collector, despised and hated by your own countrymen and Jesus this religious holy man shows up and says come follow me and you do it and you invite him to your house along with the other tax collectors and you have a feast and it's really really kind of a scandal and then you spend the next three years of your life tramping around the Judean countryside watching Jesus heal people Touch the untouchable, give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf, give speech to the mute, cast out demons, feed crowds with just a couple of fish and some loaves of bread. And then you see him make his, and you hear every one of his sermons that Challenges you and pushes you to trust in him, to have faith in him. And then, when you just think you're starting to figure out, and maybe, just maybe this guy really is the promised Messiah, one of your own betrays him. He's arrested in the middle of the night, held trial by a kangaroo court, marched into. A sea pilot, there's this crowd demanding his crucifixion. He's scourged, beaten, whipped, spit, spit on, and forced to carry his own cross to Golgotha, and there they nail him to a cross and he dies. And you think, this is the end of it. What am I going to do now? I've just spent three years of my life with Jesus Christ and he's dead i thought he was the messiah and then this amazing thing happens he raises from the dead he raises from the dead and you go and you meet him in galilee and jesus in the, we read this wonderful passage now the 11 disciples went to galilee to the mountain to which jesus had directed them and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You have just spent three years with Jesus Christ, and you have witnessed the unbelievable Jesus dead on a cross with a Roman spear stuck into his side and blood and water gushing out, making it finally clear that he was dead and gone. And three days later, he's raised from the dead. Touchable, seeable. You have meals with him. He continues teaching you. And at the end of the story, he says, go and make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And teach them all that I have commanded you. So you then do what? You go and you make disciples and you
1: baptize.
0: When we come back, we're going to continue with this very dangerous idea that I will be promoting, one that could get me in all kinds of trouble. Now, if you'd like to email me, you can at talkback at That's talkback at You can also uh, follow me on uh, Facebook. Ask to be my friend. I'm a friendly guy. I'll reciprocate. But don't ask me to babysit your 11 children. That's a little odd. Um, And you can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
1: Sisyoprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando. We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be EXTREME! Now for only one $300 seed offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church.
0: We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the Gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So, log on to Pirate Christian dot com and order your copy today. Da, 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 da. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning, this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor isn't giving you the goods. And what are the goods? Well, get this. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus. Everybody needs to hear this every week. Everybody, every week, believers and unbelievers, the gospel is not just for the unbeliever or the unchurched. It's preposterous. You need to hear how Jesus has died for you. All right. I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you in order to pay our bills so that we can continue to bring this radio program to you. You can support us a couple of different ways. You can visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on one of the plethora of donate buttons that we have online at FightingForTheFaith.com. That's the simplest way to do it, online secure transaction, bada-bing, bada-boom, you're in, you're out, you're done, and it's that simple. Now, if you like a more traditional way of doing it, you like that paper trail and and uh, need something that you know that's a little bit more tangible, Absolutely understand that. And the second way that you can do it is you can go, uh, you can make your gift check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, we're in the middle of this radical and dangerous idea that I'm promoting. The question that we're answering right now is, what can we do to help the convert understand their transition from death to life? Do we lead them in the sinner's prayer, uh, which isn't in Scripture, um, or something else? I started off this dangerous idea by taking us back in time a little bit and reminding us of um, really the context of Matthew Chapter 28, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples. So now you're the Apostle Matthew, you've heard Jesus say, go and make disciples. Uh, and then Jesus does this thing, he ascends into heaven. Right? And what are the Apostles doing after Jesus ascends into heaven? Uh, they're kind of hanging out in an upper room. We we p- continue this dangerous idea Uh, that I'm telling via biblical narrative, if you haven't noticed. In in Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that's the apostles and all the believers, were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them uh, and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking, uh, Galileans? Apparently Galileans were not considered the Epicureans of the uh, Judean countryside. Anyway, we continue, um, and how is it that we hear each of us each of us, in his own language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya beyond belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed, and they were perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and said, They're filled with wine. That's quite some wine. I'm not familiar with a wine that is capable of helping you speak a different language. We'll have to call that Rosetta. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. For he is at my right hand, that I I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also dwells in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, the crowd, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Notice, Peter didn't say, walk up the aisle, pray the sinner's prayer, and ask Jesus into your heart. Instead, he said this. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked and wicked generation. So those who received his word were baptized And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. How do you help a new convert understand the transition from death to life was Mark's question. And here's my radical idea. When somebody feels the pangs of God's law, contrition and remorse for their sins and understands their wicked and miserable condition and is terrified and is calling to the Lord for salvation and mercy. Baptize them. Don't wait a month. Don't make them go through a membership class. Don't ask him to come down an aisle and pray a prayer. Baptize him. And as Peter said, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Nowhere in the scriptures do we read that baptism is a public testimony of a decision that you've made for Jesus. That's absolute malarkey. Baptize him in the name of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. Radical? Yeah, think about it. Lose all the ceremony. Always keep water in the baptismal font. Or, if your church has a baptism tank, keep the jacuzzi warm. And do this radical thing. Preach law and gospel. Preach the law to condemn them of their sins and show them their wickedness and how they were the ones because of their wickedness who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when God cuts them to the quick and they say, What shall we do? Say, Repent and come up here now and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Too radical? Too radical? too crazy that's way too dangerous of an idea let me read to you more we travel now to acts chapter 8 we begin in verse 9 but there was a man named simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and he was amazed and he amazed the people of samaria saying that he himself was somebody great and they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying this is Man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Uh, But when they believed Philip, the Apostle Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs uh, and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the Holy Spirit sent the apostle Philip into Samaria. And he preached about the good news and Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And there was no altar call. There was no sinner's prayer. Instead, they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. We continue traveling down to verse 26 in chapter eight of the book of Acts. We read now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip rise and go toward the South to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, And asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how can I unless somebody guides me? And then he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? "...for his life is taken from the earth." And the eunuch said to Philip, "...about whom, I ask, does this prophet say this? About himself or about somebody else?" Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, "...see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized?" And he commanded the chariot to stop And they both went down into the water Philip and the eunuch And he baptized him And when they came up out of the water The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away And the eunuch saw him no more And went on his way rejoicing No sinner's prayer No walking an aisle No raising of a hand He was baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. We continue. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God come to him and saying, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who was called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, A tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners uh, to the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came down to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and then the thing was taken up to heaven at once. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason you are coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright man and God-fearing man, Gentile, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to this house and to hear what you have to say so he invited them in to be his guests and the next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from joppa accompanied peter and on the following day they entered caesarea cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends when peter entered cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, "'Stand up! I, too, am just a man!' And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons who were gathered. And he said to them, "'You yourselves know how unlawful it is "'for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. "'But God has shown me "'that I should not call any person common or unclean. "'So when I was sent,' I came without objection. I asked them, Why have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea." So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to speak. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable. and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge both the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some time di- for some days. No walking an aisle, no praying a sinner's prayer, no asking Jesus into your heart. They were baptized. Baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. We read more. We read. From Acts chapter 16. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside of the gate to the riverside where we were supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her entire household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Wow. She didn't pray a prayer. She didn't pray the sinner's prayer or walk an aisle. She was baptized for the forgiveness of her sins. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, actually, spirit of Pythos, which means that she probably was participating in the uh, temple worship of Apollo at the uh, Oracle of Delphi. We read she had a spirit of divination, and she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Before you think for a second that this woman was really helping out Paul, Most High God to the Greek ear to the Roman ear, means that Jesus was just one of many other gods. Most High God, he's the one and only. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with the rods." And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. And they were singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights. And rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your entire household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and his entire family. Then he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. No sinner's prayer, no walking an aisle, no asking Jesus into your heart. The Philippian jailer, and his entire household was baptized for the forgiveness of sins. We're up on our second break. We're going to continue this on the other side of the break. If you would like to email me, you can at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. com. Talk back. We'll be right back.
1: advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
0: We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross, as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. We're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hour number two. Want to remind you, if you have not ordered your copy of Pierce for Our Transgressions, you are missing out. This is a great, great theological book. Cannot say enough good about it. Definitely worth the money, worth the read. Something you want to have in your library and have read and have it in your heart as well. If you want to order Pierce for Our Transgressions, go to piratechristianradio.com and click on the icon there that we have on the homepage for Pierce for Our Transgression. All right, we're continuing with my dangerous, radical idea. And it's one that could really upset some people, even within my own denomination. It's this radical idea that when we look at how the Great Commission was carried out by the Apostles in their evangelism, nonetheless. I mean, this is it. What did they do? They didn't have membership classes. Uh, They didn't do catechism with their new converts. They baptized anybody. And it's—I'm telling you, there's something here. There's something here. I'd like to read you one more story before we switch gears. And that's from Acts chapter 22. And uh, you, what you're going to find here is is that the norm, n- no one walking an aisle, no one praying the sinner's prayer, uh, but baptism. And I think there's a strong reason as to why that is, is because the apostles taught and believed that something happens in baptism. Those of you who think that baptism is uh, you know this outward act of obedience to show the world that you've become a Christian that's it's not in the bible and if you really want to show the world that you're a christian show up to church every sunday when they see that your uh your parking spot in your garage or your, in front of your house is empty and that you you dress up and go to church every sunday that tells the world that you're a christian yeah anyway uh we uh <laughs> we continue um this is Acts chapter 22. The apostle Paul is about to uh, make his um, case uh, he, on trial, so to speak. Paul uh, um, Paul says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they had heard that he was addressing them in, he, in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, oh, by the way, I think this is his arrest that we're looking at here. He said, um, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of C- uh, Cilicia. But brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, that's the Christian faith. I persecuted Christianity to the death and binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear witness to me. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who were uh, there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul giving his testimony, so to speak. And as I was on the way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a light, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul... All that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who, who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, and call on his name. And he did. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see how the apostles carried out the Great Commission, especially as it pertains to baptism. At the point of someone's regeneration and conversion and calling, they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, to wash away their sins. One of the things that I find interesting is that in reviewing Perry Noble's sermon yesterday, it puts people into a serious case of despair. Why? Because if you're struggling with sin, the immediate question that you have is, was I sincere enough? when I prayed that prayer, because he said I needed to pray it sincerely. Maybe I didn't mean it enough. And those struggling with sin, he described them in his second sermon, basically saying those who come down week after week after week. He said that the reason why they did that is because they were having problems putting their past behind them. No, it's because they were presently struggling with their sin. Because ultimately, in a synergistic decisional evangelism mode. Salvation is based upon the sincerity of how someone said the sinner's prayer. But baptism, we learn from the God's word, is a gift from God. And in our baptisms, we read in the book of Acts, Baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. In our baptisms, our sins are washed away. This is far more powerful than the sincerity of somebody praying to ask Jesus into their heart. In fact, it's so powerful that it has power even over sin itself listen to paul so what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace might abound well by no means how can we who died to sin live in it this is romans chapter 6 now at verse 3 so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Think about this for a second. Paul, we just read him talking about his experience on the road to Damascus, where Jesus shows up and knocks him off of his high horse as he's about ready to go and round up Christians to have them punished and even put to death. The Lord Jesus Christ himself appears to him and asks, why are you persecuting me? blinds him, sends him into Damascus, and then sends him Ananias. Ananias prays, the scales fall off of his eyes, tells him of the calling on his life, and says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Paul, when he was writing Romans chapter 6, in the back of his mind, not even in the back, in the front of his mind. He can recall seeing the face of Ananias for the first time. He can remember being blinded, knocked off of his horse. And what a terrifying experience that was. He was heading in one direction and Jesus literally stopped him and turned him around. What a frightening and terrible experience. And then Ananias comes and says, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And so at the hands of this stranger, who's just taken scales off of his eyes miraculously and he can see, the next thing that happens to him is he's wet. Not with just any old water. But with water mixed with the very promises of God's word. A water that can do something that no other water can do wash away sins. And his sins are washed away. And so, as he's writing in Roman, he's writing to the church in Rome. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live by it? Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized, like me, when Ananias baptized me into Christ, we were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing and so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's some powerful water. Far more powerful than my feeble sincerity in a man-made tradition called the sinner's prayer. It's a radical idea. Keep the font filled with water or keep the pitcher close by or if you have one of those dunking tanks, keep it filled and when people are told of their sin, their need for repentance, and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you dare have them come down and pray a sinner's prayer. Give them a bathing suit or whatever is necessary and put them into the waters of baptism. But we... we, we, You... We can't do that, that would mess up everything. We 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 have a we have a method, we we have a way that we do this. We don't do it that way here. I don't care how you do it. I'm telling you what the apostles did, what the scripture says they did. I'm too stupid to make this stuff up. I'm just dumb enough to believe him. Maybe we need to rethink this whole baptism thing altogether. Chuck this stupid sinner's prayer and get the water. This is a radical dangerous and biblical idea all right we are now going to switch gears and to switch gears we have to play our uh, <clears throat> our music here for switching gears This is the theme for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sermon review time here at Fighting for the Faith. And that's the way to describe it. We just we review good sermons, bad sermons, and even ugly sermons. And today I've got good news. <laughs> I gotta turn that off. We have good news. We're not doing an ugly sermon today. No, 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 no. I am very excited, very excited about this sermon that we're going to be doing, and this was preached by Nicholas Edward Charmley, who is a regular emailer here to Fighting for the Faith. He's the assistant pastor at Tabor Baptist Church at uh, Lantrescent, uh, South Wales, and the sermon was preached at New Life uh, Bible Presbyterian Church in London, and uh, I got to tell you, this is an amazing sermon. What I want you to do as you're listening to this one is um, just let yourself get lost and taken up in the story. This is not a sermon like you've ever heard. And what's funny is, is that you're going to hear law and gospel in his opening prayer. I mean, he doesn't waste any time getting down to business. And listen, he's got an authentic British accent, which... It may potentially lend him more credibility. He has that authoritative air. And what's really wonderful about this is that he reads the what's known as the authorized version. I think that would be the King James uh, here in, in the States. And it's just natural and beautiful. And this is a, this is a type of sermon unlike what you are used to. And um, you're going to hear all about Jesus Christ. You're going to hear all about it all about him and what he's done and it's just amazing it's called the two commissions and uh, i'm hoping to uh, make a, uh have gervais edward uh gervais nicholas edward charmley's uh, sermons become uh, a semi-frequent thing that we uh, review here at fighting for the faith and so i uh, without any further ado here is uh, the two commissions preached by gervais nicholas edward charmley Eternal God, everlasting
2: Father, thou who hast created all that is, and thou who by thy great power dost uphold all things, we come before thee once again on this day. And once again we come before thee as those who have no demands that we can make of thee whose only claim upon thee is through thy great mercy, which thou hast declared unto mankind in thy Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, when thou didst freely, not sparing him, give him up to suffer and to die for us men and for our salvation. And oh, we would praise thee for that, that thou didst send him to die for us wretched sinners,
0: Listen to that. In his sermon, he is preaching the gospel, that he would send his son to die for us wretched sinners. (laughs) This is so good.
2: Eternal God, once again we confess our sins before thee, for we would not pretend that we are perfect people, but confess that we all have offended against thee, In thought, in word and in deed. And there is no health in us. But oh we come for that mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say with old Mr. Wesley. That sinner am I who on Jesus rely. And come for the mercy thou canst not deny. And indeed Father we would embrace that great salvation which thou hast declared in Christ. Oh be merciful unto us. Father, we offer up our prayers and our petitions. Thou knowest our hearts. We do pray for those who are unable to be with us this evening for various reasons, that thou wouldst visit them and build them up in the most holy faith where they are and strengthen them to bear witness and strengthen all of us to bear witness to thee in the places where thou hast placed us. May we indeed be fortified and reinforced in our faith. Eternal God, we would pray for this church, that thou wouldst indeed build this church as a witness in this dark and wicked city, in this city that is full of all manner of evil. Oh, that this church would stand as a beacon of thy light and thy hope and that thy truth would go forth from here oh visit all thy churches with thy blessing we know that there are many of thy people gathering now in this great city and there are many many not only in this city but throughout this nation and throughout the nations of Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland and all the nations of the world who gather to worship thee this day. And, ask, and we do ask, Father, that thou wouldst visit thy people with thy great blessing from on high. And we would know the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts through the word. We ask thy blessing on all thy ministers. That thou wouldst give a word in season to speak to the weary we pray for those who come into the Lord's house who know thee not, that thou wouldst be pleased to work in their hearts by thy Holy Spirit, that they would indeed be turned unto righteousness, and thou wouldst be glorified.
0: I hate to stop a prayer. Man, this prayer is just dripping with law and gospel and great theology whoa uh, 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 Pastor Charmley, if you uh, hold a, uh, if you want to come out here to the United States and hold a conference on learning how to pray uh, we 'd love to have you come and teach us, man, this is
1: good stuff
2: eternal God, we ask that thou wouldst glorify thyself, thou wouldst revive thy church, and we pray once more thou wouldst uphold thy persecuted people, we pray Father for Our Queen, Thou hast commanded us to pray for those who are in authority over us, and she is the head of state in this land, and we ask that she would be guided by Thy counsel and Thy word, and all that are in authority under her would govern righteously and impartially in justice. God, be merciful to us. Be merciful to us poor sinners. And so, Father, we would praise and thank thee for the many blessings we have received from thy hand. We thank thee for health and strength to be here. We thank thee for sufficient to subsist upon. We thank thee, Heavenly Father, for the provision of this place, this meeting house for this church. We thank thee for the minister whom we trust thou hast Supplied for this place for this people but most of all heavenly father as we thank thee for the word of God as we thank thee for the liberty of the gospel in this land we would thank thee for thine unspeakable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ once offered the just for the unjust to bring us unto thee and so father we thy people would praise and thank and glorify thee for thy great love and mercy, for thy righteousness and thy love. And all this in the name of thy Son, our Lord and our Savior, our priest and our King
0: and our prophet, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to stop here. That that prayer was almost six minutes long. And this is just going into the sermon. And I'm going to point this out. That prayer... Had more doctrine, biblical teaching, and law and gospel, and proclaimed Christ more than all of the Easter sermons combined that we heard from all of these different seeker types uh, sermons during our, our uh, contest on on the uh, worst Easter sermon of two thousand and nine. Just in the prayer, more law, more gospel, more Jesus than all of those sermons combined. Our text this evening is uh, to be found in the Gospel according
2: to Matthew and verses 11 through 20. Now, we, all of us, to a certain extent, are readers. We no doubt read different kinds of books, different books by different authors, but we are all, in some respects, readers. And we know that the beginning of a book is important. The beginning of a book is designed to grab the reader and, as it were, drag the reader into the book. Grabs your attention and keeps you reading. That is the intention of the beginning of a book. But the ending of a book is just as important. The end of a book decides what you will carry away from it and how many books, and I think particularly at the moment in terms of works of fiction or biography or history have been ruined by a bad ending you know, you may may think in terms of the the thriller, the detective novel and the, the suspense has been worked up and suddenly the cavalry arrive and everything's fine and the suspense is broken it fails An anti-climax at the end of a book ruins it. And you come away thinking, well, the rest of the book was all right, but the ending, oh, the ending. It determines what you carry away. The best of endings are those that leave you with a deep impression, that sum up the book, as it were. And I can think immediately. of a book that I've read a biography of John Calvin that is not by a Calvinist but by a secular historian and the end of the book made an enormous impression on me the historian says this he says at this point this is the final paragraph at this point what we may think of his doctrine or his system becomes of no importance we are left in the presence of a man who followed what he believed to be the truth and consecrated his life to its attainment. And for this he will be had in honour as long as courage and singleness of purpose are held as virtues among men. So he sums up all Calvin's life as a man who, believed what, who followed what he believed to be the truth and consecrate his life for its attainment. And therefore, he says, this man, whether you're a Calvinist or not, should be had in honour because of his courage and singleness of purpose. You see, that carries you away with this admiration for the man the book's about. It's a wonderful ending, I think. And a good book always has a wonderful ending. It carries you out thinking here is the message of this book or here is something that this book means that I must do now in that conclusion really it says the application is this follow the truth and consecrate your life to the service of that truth and it brings you then with something to do not because it says go and do this But because it shows you a wonderful man who did that. Marvellous. Well, this is the ending of Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew, all the Gospel writers, they're wonderful authors. They've got wonderful beginnings. And they've got wonderful endings. And they're very careful. You know, the Apostle John says that if he were to record everything that Jesus had done... He thinks the whole world wouldn't contain the book what a wonderful man Jesus was,
0: but watch how he is he's really getting us to engage the text and even his illustration about the idea of a really good story having a great ending he's here his text is the end of the Gospel of Matthew and he's engaging us in this text and Basically saying, how could you not be changed by this? How can you not go and do something and follow the truth? Not because you've commanded you're commanded to, but because you have you've been changed by it. The truth is there. Go and live according to it. What an idea! But these things are written so you may believe. They've been selective got to just comment on that little text from john this is in in the liturgy and don't let it ever ever just wander by you in the liturgy john says these things are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god that's why the scriptures that's why these gospels are there so that we may believe
2: Hmm. good historians you see a good historian does this he takes all the material he's got and he's Edits it according to what he wants the reader to take from the book. The Holy Spirit is not a sloppy author. The Holy Spirit organises his material. And he works through men who organise their material. God is not a God of chaos but of order. Now we have this ending here. Now Matthew's gospel has been described as the gospel of the kingdom. What Matthew wants to do is to tell his Jewish readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel and proclaim what that kingdom is, what the kingdom of God is. Now I have to Tell you that I'm indebted in terms of the structure of this sermon to another man. It's the gentleman who's responsible for the notes in this Bible here, Dr. Joseph Parker, who was a minister in London who died in 1902. And I read his sermon on this passage, and I was so struck by his outline, his analysis of it, that I've appropriated the outline
0: for this sermon. No listen to what he said he's he's giving credit to the man who wrote the outline for his sermon and where do you find it from a preacher who preached this on this text in nineteen oh two that's the wonderful thing about the Word of God. you don't have to make it relevant. The truth that is in God's word when somebody really hits it you could take their outline and you can preach it today because all of us are sinners who need to hear the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and we can hear that story over and over again just like when my girls were little and you kind of miss these days I'm looking forward to grandchildren but I'm not that old yet but uh when, when my little girls were, were toddlers, they would get their favorite book every night. We had a ritual. They'd go and get their favorite book, and they would come and get on my lap, and I would have to read the book. Whether it be Goodnight Moon or Where the Wild Things Are or Green Eggs and Ham or Go Dog Go, it doesn't matter. Read the story to them, and at the end of it, they'd say, Gen? Gen? Read and sometimes they could convince me to read it again. The truth of the Scripture is a story that we need to hear again and again and again and again. And, it, and the best preachers are not the ones in our current time right now. And Pastor Charmley is wise to get his notes from men who have preceded him in the faith. Brothers and sisters, just like you and I, We're only separated from them by time. And yet, we worship with them. In the communion of the saints, they worship God visibly. We worship Him whom we have yet to meet face to face. What a testimony. What what an honor to be able to preach from the sermon notes of a great minister who's gone before us. Over a hundred years ago, maybe you can find the notes on somebody who preached a fantastic sermon 500 years ago, a thousand, two thousand. We continue. The words are mine. The structure is Dr. Parker's.
2: So do not think, oh, Mr. Charnley has got this wonderful structure. No, Dr. Parker has a wonderful structure. I'm just following him. And what Dr. Parker points out is that we have here these two commissions. We are familiar with the Great Commission of verses 16 to 20. But Matthew has very carefully taken an account of another commission and put it in verses 11 through to 15. We have this structure here. Where you have these two commissions. And we may say that we have here Satan's great commission and the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have Jesus' commission second, and first of all, we have Satan's commission. And so, first of all, we have Satan's commission. This counteraction that Satan has mounted against the gospel, against the Lord Jesus. And we open, as it were, in this darkened room in the temple offices in Jerusalem. And here are the high priest, the, the elders, the chief priests, the men who have, who have power, the men who have they think dispose of Jesus Christ. And there they are sitting at, the, at their table, and they're rejoicing. There will oh, here was this man, the Messiah. This man who was a threat to us. This man who was calling the people back to God and away from our traditions. This man who was threatening our power and we killed him. We got rid of him. and They're slapping each other on the back. And they're rejoicing. Jesus is dead. And then the door opens. And it's one of the Roman soldiers in full armour. His face is white as a sheet. He's shaking so much; the armour's clattering, and they can hardly hear what he says. What is it? What's happened? And he tells them, and he reports: "We were at the tomb. We were watching round the great stone over the entrance. We were watching, and suddenly." There was this terrible earthquake. The ground shook, but worse. It wasn't a natural earthquake. This supernatural being, this angel, shining bright like a flame of fire, came down from heaven and rolled the stone away. That great stone that we couldn't... And a man couldn't roll away and that angel just pushed it out of the way as if it were nothing. And he sat on it. And we looked at his face. And we were so terrified that we sank to the ground like dead men. And worse, still worse, when the grave was opened, that man we put in it, that dead man, he walked out again and he's not dead anymore and oh he wasn't bleeding he wasn't limping no his face shone like the sun and the wounds were still in his hands and his feet and his side but oh he was like the son of God he's been raised from the dead we took, him, we took him to the army surgeon. The army surgeon certified he was dead. His heart wasn't beating anymore. He was dead. And now he's alive and not just alive, but he's more full of life, more alive than he was before. It's not just his body restored to life, but he's more than a man. And you can picture it, can't you? Those priests and those elders. And they're looking with horror at this soldier. He's not lying. No Roman soldier could be lying. This brave man, this warrior. And he's scared half to death. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. And they're terrified too. The plan has failed. Jesus is alive but they killed him and he's alive again the son of God has been raised from the dead and there's no ifs or buts about it now he is God he is the Messiah and God has vindicated him by raising him from the dead satan's plan to destroy the Messiah has failed horribly and in fact they've just done the work of God What can they do? What will they do? Will they repent in dust and ashes? Will they cry out? What wicked men we were. How evil we were to do this thing. No, he is God and we will worship him and fall down before him. No. No. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. In other words, a huge bribe saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. You see, falling asleep on duty for a Roman soldier was a capital offence. Indeed, just a hundred years ago in the British army, if a soldier fell asleep on duty and he was found by another man sleeping, and reported to the officers, he would, the, he would very soon find himself up against a wall, facing a firing squad. You see, if a sentry falls asleep on duty, he endangers all his men. He endangers the entire force, however big you're in know, battalion or whatever. If a soldier falls on duty, falls asleep on duty, then all the other soldiers are in danger. The sentry's job is to watch. And if he's lazy and falls asleep on duty, then the enemy can get past him and slaughter the rest of the unit. And so a soldier who fell asleep on duty was to be executed. The Romans, if that happened, they would take the soldier and they would beat him with sticks until he stopped breathing. The Jews if a temple guard was found sleeping on duty, well, the NCO, the sergeant who was going around inspecting, had a pot of oil with him. And if he found a a temple guard asleep on duty, he'd pour the oil over the man's head and set him on fire. Instant execution. Because, you see, a soldier who sleeps on duty endangers all his fellow soldiers. so this idea that Roman soldiers the whole unit fell asleep on duty they'd never do that they were trained not to and each of them would be thinking if another fell asleep they'd shake him awake and say no you could put us all in danger by doing that do you want the sergeant centurion do you want the centurion to have you killed there's no way a Roman soldier would fall asleep on duty. Trained men don't do that. It's an absurd story. And that's why they needed the bribe, and that's why they needed the assurance that the priests would
0: square it with Pontius Pilate. Notice what he's doing. He He is deep into this text, and he's slowly, methodically... And using story and narrative, doing apologetics at the same time. All of which he's counteracting the claims of the, that the guards had fallen asleep and still at the same time making the point, the Son of God has risen from the dead and Satan's plan has been thwarted. much different than any preaching you hear here in the states if the story ever got to him because you can
2: imagine Pilate, he would hear perhaps those you know those troops you had guarding the sepulchre the tomb of jesus they fell asleep and he'd have them on the carpet in a moment give them a good dressing down he'd have the centurions take them out and kill them unless priests went to him and said look this is a damage limitation exercise Jesus rose from the dead and we can't let the people know and then he conspired together now that's Satan's commission Satan has given a great commission to his servants and his commission is effectively this it is go out and spread lies about Jesus Christ so that people will not believe that he has risen from the dead Go out, says Satan, to all his servants. Go out and tell lies. Wherever you can, however you can, he says, go out and, take l- and tell these lies about Jesus. There are books today that you go into WH Smiths or Waterstones or Borders or any other bookshop. You will see these books that have been written by Satan's servants full of lies about the Lord Jesus
0: Christ,
2: we probably all can remember the Da Vinci Code. That was what coming on now for four years ago that that film came out, and of course the book came out before that. And that was repeating more lies about the Lord Jesus. This idea that his disciples originally didn't believe he was God—full of lies. There are many, many people who have gone out into the world. Many antichrists, says the Apostle John. For who is antichrist, he says, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And that's what these antichrists do. There are antichrists at the moment, like Richard Dawkins, who are right at the top of the bestseller lists. And they are fulfilling their master's commission who has told them go into all the world and tell lies about the Lord Jesus so men will not believe that he is risen from the dead. Satan's great commission. And Satan's commission is in force. Now we see Satan's people carrying out this commission day by day on the television, on the radio, in print, in the newspapers. In the bookstores, they're there. Satan's great commission, in a darkened room, in secret, go and tell lies. You know, every man, and I say this on the basis of what the Apostle Paul says, every man knows that there is a God. Paul says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And the idea is hold in the sense of holding it down. You have the truth bubbling up within them, the image of God. And they're holding it down because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them. And they won't have it. They won't have this God. Satan won't have God to be God and so he will have the lies to be told into all the world. If men were to take the Bible, take the Gospels and read them as they would read any other historical book, then they would conclude that Jesus is God and is risen from the dead. My father is a, an academic historian, probably one of the leading academic historians in the United Kingdom. And he has read the Gospels, and he says, the Gospels are history. And just as he has to believe, on the basis of the historical documents, that Winston S. Churchill was the Prime Minister of this country during the Second World War, so he has to believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he is the Son of God. He's a historian speaking as a historian. back about 50 years ago there was a journalist called Frank Morrison and he wanted to disprove the resurrection so he set out he got all his books together read the gospels read everything he could on ancient history and then he wrote a book and the book was called Who Moved the Stone and and it's a wonderful book it's still in print and it began with a chapter on the book that refused to be written because you see Mr. Morrison, the journalist, took all the evidence and weighed it up. And he came to a startling conclusion. This journalist who believed that Jesus, who wanted to prove Jesus was never raised from the dead, had to conclude that Jesus was raised from the dead. And therefore that he was the Son of God. And moreover he is the Son of God. And that he lives forevermore. The, God, the resurrection cannot be disproved. Many lies are spoken against it. It is attacked, but it cannot be disproved. And so we come to Jesus' great commission. And oh, what a change this is. No longer the darkened room in Jerusalem, but the open sunlit mountaintop in Galilee. The eleven disciples went away, away from Jerusalem, away from the enemies and all the lies, into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So different, isn't it, from that conspiratorial meeting in that room in Jerusalem, that wonderful mountaintop, sunlit mountain in Galilee, and the calm, and the sea far below, that calm sea of Galilee where the Lord had walked on the water and stilled the storm oh blessed rest in Galilee and there he is on the mountaintop giving his final commission to his disciples because he has risen from the dead because he is victorious over the grave they killed Jesus Christ they killed the Lord of glory but they couldn't keep him dead And he gave up his life. He gave himself freely to die for us sinners. And now here he is triumphant. And there are the wounds in his hands and in his feet and in his side. Those as Mr. Spurgeon calls them those blessed emblems of the crucified. And they can look on him and they see he is Jesus Jesus wonderfully transformed. It's not, it's not just the same man who was with them in the upper room. Oh, it is the same man, but not just the same man. It's the same body, yet it's not just the same body. It's a human body, resurrected. Not temporarily like Lazarus, but forevermore. So he is, Jesus Christ has a resurrection body. And there he is, with this body made more godlike, still human, but transformed, more than human, transformed into a higher humanity. And there he is, this victorious Son of Man, standing on the mountaintop declaring that he is going to the Father not forever but he has ascended his body he is ascending unto the Father and if I go to the Father he says I will come again and bring you to be with me where I am he is ascending for us You know it's said and it should be said and insisted upon everything Jesus does is for us sinners. It's a wonderful thought. Everything he has done is for us. He is in all his offices. Christ for us. And so he has risen from the dead for us to declare that God has pardoned all his people. He's been raised again for our justification to declare that all
0: who believe in him are saved forever. Gotta stop. Who is this sermon about? (laughs) It is all about Christ for you and so beautifully, poetically, narratively spoken. And I just, as I'm listening here, I I don't want to interrupt it because. It's the kind of sermon that, when I hear it, I, I like to get lost in it a little bit. If I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It's just, oh, man. Ah, oh, good stuff. Raised again for our justification.
2: And now he is leaving his orders he is going as it were that king to a far country with his orders occupy until I come what are we to do till he comes well we are to build we are to preach the kingdom of God to preach the gospel and that as a way of building a kingdom is utterly amazing now how are kingdoms built in this world how are empires built in this world they are built by armies going out and conquering the Romans, they were the great empire, the great world power. How had they become that? By their armies, going out, slaughtering hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people. Going out, destroying whole villages, killing. They went out as warriors to conquer. But Jesus says to his disciples go ye therefore and teach now the word translated teach here is the same word from which we get the word disciple it's literally go and make disciples of all nations in other words go and disciple all the nations it's something we can't do as human beings we can't do this And I'll come to that later the fact we can't do it But this is what he says. He says, go and make disciples. What are disciples? Disciples are learners. They are followers. Disciples are those who follow a teacher. And Jesus is that teacher, that master. Teaching them. Not forcing them, but teaching them. Islam went out. In the seventh century with a sword and swept across Arabia, swept across North Africa, swept across Asia Minor and conquered with the sword. And the sword was put to the throats of the people and they were told submit, submit. That's what Islam says. That's how Islam became a great power that Jesus says teach. No sword but teach disciple amazing go into go and teach all nations all the peoples of the earth are to be reached with the message everyone we can't do it how can we do this and lo I am with you always even unto the end of the world. I am with you. You see, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not to be established by us men and women and our force and our cleverness. It's to be established by the king. And that's how it should be. The king goes out with his army, and lo, I am with you always. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. He sent the Holy Spirit to be the other comforter. The other comforter like Him, the one who dwells with us as the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. And therefore He is with us. And therefore we can go into all the nations and teach and make disciples I do not know how he will win the nations I do not know But I know this he said he will and therefore we trust him and therefore we follow him as he established the kingdom and the kingdom of God spreads at this point the kingdom of God is to be found on a mountain top in galilee that is where the disciples were and nowhere else now we are here in this great city of london thousands of miles from galilee and between here and galilee There are many nations and in each of those nations there is a church of God. And in each of those nations there are the disciples of God. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. The kingdom is growing. The nations are being discipled not because we're clever. Not because we've got good missionary programs but because we have Christ. He has said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it
0: now. Oh, (laughs) so right. You know, uh, Pastor Charmley, I seriously doubt you're going to be invited to one of these Innovate Catalysts uh, exponential type uh, conferences because uh, you believe that Christ builds his church through the foolishness of preaching, the way he said he would do it. Not through clever methods and marketing and things like that, but through the humble silliness, the foolishness of preaching.
2: Hmm. There are several understandings of the term the gates of hell. There are some who say, well, this is the church attacking Satan's strongholds. But also the word gates, the city gate in the Old Testament is where the council met. And so we may see the gates of hell as Satan's schemes and Satan's plans, Satan's commission, these lies that he has, these lies that he wants men and women to believe. And they will not prevail against the Lord Jesus Christ's work in building his church. You think of these Jewish leaders. They said we want no one to believe in the Lord Jesus. And so following Satan the father of lies. They went out with this lie. And they said well this will establish the kingdom for us. This will establish our nation. Now the date of the crucifixion was around about 3033 AD. In 65 AD, or thereabouts, the Jews rose up against the Romans. The Roman garrison in Jerusalem was slaughtered. And the news came to Rome. And an army marched on Jerusalem and marched through the land of Judea. And as they marched... They put cities and towns to fire and the sword. And the cities went up in smoke. The people fled, and Jerusalem was encircled by the Roman army, camped outside. Hordes of them. And inside, the Jews were trapped. The Christians fled to the mountains, and the assault was pressed home, and finally Jerusalem fell, and the Roman soldiers swarmed into the city, the column of soldiers with their shields locked moved up the main streets, fanned out the alleyways, striking with their swords anyone who got in their way cut down, slaughtered where they stood, up to the temple. The center of the rebellion. And there were the enemies. There was that temple which the Jewish leaders had tried to keep their hold on. And the Romans attacked. And the temple was set ablaze. From end to end, that. Glorious temple of King Herod was set on fire. The gold in the sanctuary melted, ran down between the gaps in the stones. And when the Roman soldiers forced their way in, there was melted gold everywhere. And as it hardened, their grief took over. Oh, we must have the gold. And so it was torn down, stone from stone from stone, right to the ground. The very paving stabs ripped up to get at the gold, and just a heap of ruins was left. Well, some centuries later, a Roman emperor called Julian the Apostate decided he would build a new temple there just to frustrate the plans of God who said there would never be another temple there. That the Jewish worship would not be revived. Well, he cleared the site. The ruins of the old temple, those blackened ruins, were torn down, swept aside. The whole site leveled. And the workmen arrived And a huge earthquake, rocked the temple mount. Great fissures opened in the earth. And Flames leapt out of the fissures and the builders fled never to return. The the Romans destroyed the temple. The Jewish leaders lost everything. Satan's plan failed. Satan's plan will always fail. He wants to hold on to the nations. He can't because Jesus has, he says here, I am with you always. He says elsewhere, all power has been given. He says in verse 18 indeed, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. It's not Satan's power. Satan doesn't rule the world. Let no one tell you he does. Oh, he wants you to believe it. He wants you to think he does. But Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Even Satan's Lord, even though Satan won't admit that, Jesus is Lord of all. And so the kingdom of God will grow. Until the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. With the voice of the trumpet and the shout of the archangel. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Here is the great commission, it is that we, we Christians, not just us ministers, but all you Christians, you are to go into all the world and you are to teach, share the gospel. Teach what Christ has commanded. These two commissions are still in force. You only have to go into borders, into Waterstones, into W.H. Smiths to see that Satan's commission is in force. When Easter comes, no doubt we'll have another special on the television telling us why we shouldn't believe in the resurrection. Satan has his servants everywhere. And he wants to hold on to his kingdom. To spread his lies. And his servants are very zealous. And Jesus has his commission to build his church. Not with lies but with the truth. Because he is the truth. And we as Christians have a solemn duty to speak the truth. Because all truth is God's truth. And we are all All of us, carrying out one commission or the other. If you are a Christian, you must be carrying out our Lord's commission. Because you'll be living as a Christian. You will have to speak as a Christian. If you are not, then you are denying the resurrection, whether you are doing so openly or not. You you must serve one master or the other. You know Christianity depends on a historical truth. If Christ is not raised, says the Apostle, then our faith is in vain. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then nevertheless we have good moral stories if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Christianity is a lie. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we should pull this this chapel down and burn every Bible if Christ has not been raised from the dead. But he has been raised. We have the eyewitnesses who say that he was raised from the dead. Let them produce their eyewitnesses who say he wasn't. Let them produce their records that tell us that Jesus was not raised. Let them do it. And we will face their fabrications. Not with special pleading, but with the tools of the historian, and we will prove that their false gospels—their gospels of Thomas, their gospels of Mary Magdalene, their Koran—we will prove that they are false with the tools of honest scholarship.
0: <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Love it, just. Uh... He, and he gets style points too, man. I just uh, not worthy. wow, that's great. Hi <laughs> yay, that's so
2: good. We are all serving one master or another, and only Jesus will stand. Jesus is triumphant. This message goes to the Christian then do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of Dan Brown or James Cameron or any one of the many atheists and skeptics that they will bring out. Do not be afraid of them because Jesus has conquered already. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid to investigate the truthfulness of the scriptures. That's right. God... Is the owner of all truth. Do not be afraid. Jesus has risen again for you. And he is with you. Always by his Holy Spirit. And he is coming again in glory. To take us. To be with him. And any who are on the wrong side. Will be defeated. And their lives will come to nothing. They will all be revealed for the rubbish that they are. When the truth comes, you'll find no one at the second coming saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. When the heavens are open and the Son of Man comes, you won't find Richard Dawkins saying, Well, I don't believe in him. (laughs) Yep, that's right. You will find him, well, as old Mr. Wesley puts it, those who set at naught and sold him. Those who nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing shall the true Messiah see. Those who have set themselves against Christ will mourn and weep at that day. But oh, for us Christians, there will be that day of joy forever. And even now we have his assurance that though the clouds from sight received him when the forty days were o'er, how can we forget his promise? I am with you evermore. Oh yes, he says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen.
0: Well, there you have it. The uh, the world premiere of uh, uh, sermons by Jervis Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley, Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley, a beautiful sermon about Jesus Christ for you that prophetically proclaimed the resurrection of Christ for you and wielded the law to expose your wickedness and the plans of the devil and antichrist and told in such a way that just for me it took me it took me to judea it took me to the to the mountainside in galilee it took me to jerusalem while the romans were sacking and attacking and destroying jerusalem and it brought me to christ crucified and risen for me for the forgiveness of my sins is there any comparison between this type of preaching and what these seeker driven goat herders are doing no different there's a huge difference there's no comparison anyway Well, folks, I'd like to thank you for staying with us uh, through our sermon review today and want to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing you this important radio outreach. You can support us by visiting FightingForTheFaith.com and clicking on our Donate button. We have a few of them there on our homepage at FightingForTheFaith.com. And you can donate there uh, securely using a credit card online. Or if you'd like to do it the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting For The Faith and mail it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code six 46- Zero three eight. Well, we're at the end of our show, and I uh, want to remind you that you can email me talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. I'm also friendly on Facebook, which means that you can ask to be my friend, and I'll say, sure, why not? Or you can follow me on Twitter and get our secret dispatches. You don't even need a decoder ring to do it. Um, name on Twitter is Pirate Christian. Until next time, may the Lord bless i